This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. So everything's set, autopilot set, engine power set for cruise, and about two or three minutes after level off, I begin to feel a slight surge in the engine. And of course, your first response is disbelief. But the surging began to increase, and at that point, it was really obvious that I had to do something. Welcome to another edition of There I Was a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. In today's episode, we honor the memory of Amelia Earhart and her attempt to fly around the world some 82 years ago. Our guest today is Brian Lloyd, who recreated Amelia Earhart's route around the world as best he could, given modern day dynamics in politics. And on that flight, he incurred an engine failure in his Mooney, and he's here to share the story with us. Brian, welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good to be here. So, uh, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. What an interesting, first of all, just an interesting uh, event to try to recreate Amelia Earhart's flight on the 80th anniversary. And you were sharing a little bit about the significance of her flight being around the equator. Do you mind, before we get into your event, share with us a little bit of what you were trying to do and why and the significance of that being around the equator? Well, uh, Amelia Earhart was at the time, trying to do something that was a little different than the other pilots had done in doing circumnavigations. At that point in time, if you recall, Wiley Post was sort of the long distance pilot, had done a couple circumnavigations. So what could she do that was different? And she decided that she was going to make her circumnavigation as close to the equator as possible. That meant that the total distance of her circumnavigation was going to be as great as possible, greater than uh, a northern route and a more difficult route because she was going to be crossing the South Atlantic. She was crossing all of sub-Saharan Africa, and she was flying very long legs over the Pacific Ocean. So her flight was going to be a technical, really was going to be a technical challenge back then. Uh, what she was doing in 1937 really was uh, the equivalent of of a moonshot. So, uh, so it was. Uh, it not only was difficult then; it's still difficult now for uh, someone in a general aviation aircraft. Unless, I mean, of course, yeah, we you can get in a 747 or 
777 or something like that and do it. But if you're going to do it in a in an airplane that mere mortals like us can own, uh, it becomes a challenge. Mm, yeah, it sounds like. And you uh, decided to do this in your uh, Mooney. And so can you tell us what kind of modifications did you do to your Mooney to make it able to conduct this flight? Well, sure. First, let me tell you why I picked the Mooney. And there's actually a story in that as well. Back in 1985, my father and I decided to fly our 1959 Comanche from Frederick, Maryland, the home of AOPA, to Paris for the Paris Air Show. And we had equipped it with uh, long-range ferry tanks uh, to replace the back seat. And when we got to Gander, Newfoundland, for our leg from Gander, Newfoundland to Shannon, Ireland, we landed, and a Mooney 231 landed right after us and pulled up and parked next to us. And he was also flying to Shannon the next morning. So, of course, I had to go look at his airplane, and I did. And the thing that struck me right away was the fact that where we had 110 gallons of ferry fuel in our back seat, he had 30 and he was going to be able to make the crossing in nine hours versus our 11 hours and burn about uh, 60% of the fuel that we were going to burn. So immediately right there, I was thinking if I ever had to do any other really long distance flying, I would probably want to look at, uh, at using something like the Mooney 231. So now let's fast forward to uh, 2012. Unfortunately, in 2012, my father passed away, and we hadn't made that second really long flight that we had wanted to do. So I decided that I was going to do something, looked at what routes I might take, and I was very much taken by Amelia Earhart and her attempt to fly around the world at the equator. That looked like it would be the most challenging flight, and I would have legs of as much as 18 or 19 hours uh, there. And I needed an airplane that was going to be very, very efficient in, uh, in using fuel. I wanted to be able to carry reasonably uh, enough fuel to have, I always like to have for a long overwater crossing, three hours of reserve. So if I know I'm going to have an 18 hour to 19 hour leg, then I need to have 22 to 23 hours fuel on board. So the Mooney looked like it could do that. So in terms of, uh, so in uh, 2012, I acquired a 1979 Mooney 231M20K and uh, began the process of equipping it for long distance overwater flying. It got a new panel. Uh, of course, we all want that uh, fancy glass panel and I went for all of that. But in addition to the, the things that I think a lot of people would put in there, I put things in that uh, most people would not uh, consider doing today. For instance, I added DME, I added ADF, and I added an HF transceiver as a permanent installation. Then I wanted to increase the fuel capacity of the airplane. Uh, there is an STC to increase the capacity of the wing tanks by 50%. Uh, giving me over 11 hours of fuel in the wings, taking it from 72 up to 115 uh, gallons of fuel in the wings. And then uh, we modified the fuel system to add a 100-gallon uh, turtle pack, a, a flexible fuel cell, in place of the back seat. So I had a total of 215 gallons of fuel aboard the aircraft, giving me the kind of range that I needed. At economy cruise, I burn about nine and a half uh, gallons per hour. 
And so that gives me the range that I need to safely make the uh, long legs necessary or incumbent in uh, her flight. Got it. Interesting. So on the, the route of your flight then, moving into the, uh, the situation that you, you had with your engine failure, can you walk us through what legs you had done and what, what leg you were on when you had the incident? Sure. Well, if you get a chance to look at, uh, you can search on the web and you can find Amelia Earhart's route. Uh, the route runs down through the Bahamas and the Antilles, down the uh, east coast of South America to Natal, Brazil, then across the Atlantic from Natal, from the South Atlantic, uh, from Natal to Dakar, Senegal, then across Sub-Saharan Africa. Basically, if you look at the widest part of Africa, that is uh, her leg from uh, Senegal. Now, she went through what is now Eritrea and Yemen, both places that are uh, unattractive to um, American pilots. My first real deviation from her route, uh, in addition to bypassing Venezuela, was to bypass Eritrea and Yemen and cut up through um, Khartoum. Okay. So once I reached Khartoum in the Sudan, I turned north eastbound, crossing the Red Sea and the Saudi desert to Oman before continuing on to Karachi, what is now Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And that's where I rejoined her route and uh, continued across uh, Asia. I then deviated from her route again after reaching Darwin, Australia. After Darwin, Australia, she proceeded to lay in Papua New Guinea, and then from there she was headed for Howland Island, which is a small uh, one-mile by three-mile island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And that was where it was on that leg that she disappeared. So once I reached Darwin, realizing that my route was going to have to deviate from hers significantly because I would not be able to land on Howland Island, I was going to have to pick another place. So I chose to allow my route to cross Australia and then across to New Zealand, then from New Zealand up to American Samoa, to uh, Pago Pago, and uh, from there across Howland Island and then on up to Honolulu. So my problem occurred on the leg from New Zealand to American Samoa. Got it. Okay. So I'm just tracing your route as you're talking. And um, so you went quite a bit farther south than her route because you still overflew Howland Island. Yes. Okay. My route took me across Australia, eventually going from Darwin across the outback to um, northeast Australia to uh, Bundaberg and then down the east coast to Sydney. From Sydney, I crossed the Tasman Sea to uh, central, the central part of uh, the North Island of New Zealand. Yep. From there, my route was to, it, it's actually pronounced Pongo Pongo. Okay. So, so it was that leg from New Zealand to American Samoa that the engine quit. Got it. So you're en route from New Zealand to Pongo Pongo. And uh, walk us through what happened. You're, you're at what altitude and cruise speed and what would you notice? Well, I had departed and was climbing out, normal climb out. And I had just leveled off at my cruising altitude of flight level 210. So climb out completed, power reduction completed, cow flaps closed, lean the engine, lean a peak. 
and get everything set up for the, it was going to be about a a seven hour leg to American Samoa. So everything set, autopilot set, engine power set for cruise. Everything was done, all set for cruise. And about two or three minutes after level off, I begin to feel a slight surge in the engine. And of course, if you've ever had something like that, your first response is disbelief. That didn't happen. I didn't notice that. That really didn't happen. But the surging began to increase. And at that point, it was really obvious that I had to do something. So I'm looking. Engine instruments appeared normal, but the surging increased to the point where the engine began to cut out. Uh, You know, that kind of Yeah. And um, just before that happened, I called, I was still in contact with with Auckland uh, Center. About how many miles feet wet were you, do you estimate, off of New Zealand? I was, well, fortunately, if you look at charts for the North Island of New Zealand, there's an island on the north, just off the northeast coast called North Barrier Island. Yep. And I had crossed over that. So I was about... I want to say about 30 nautical miles northeast of North Barrier Island when this started to happen. So I turned the aircraft around. I notified ATC that I was um, uh, turning around, that I was having engine problems. Of course, uh, they, they approved pretty much anything I wanted to do at that point. And the engine began. At this point, I'm, I'm fiddling with, uh, with mixture and throttle and trying to find something that will make the, make the engine run a little better. When I got that really unpleasant feeling you know where the engine quits immediately and you're kind of thrown forward into your shoulder strap and you get that sound from the propeller where you just know that the engine is no longer producing any power at all Hmm. the propeller is driving the engine and that's where i was okay this is not going to be a nurse it back to new zealand this is a full-on engine failure I've done everything. I've switched tanks. I've checked the mags, all the rest of that. So there I was, engine out and trying to figure out where I'm going to go. First question is, am I going swimming? Mm-hmm. And I looked at, I have ForeFlight. In ForeFlight, they've added the glide ring. And I'm looking at it, and the glide ring clearly overlaps North Barrier Island. And North Barrier Island has a 3,000-foot strip. So I informed... Uh, Auckland Center that I was headed for uh, North Barrier Island and that this, this would probably be a dead stick landing. So I'm up high enough that I've got a while. I'm a good 15 to 20 minutes before I'm going to be on the ground. So I have time to, to work the problem. With the propeller still turning, and I made no attempt to stop the propeller because it, it looked like I was going to be there. With the propeller still turning, I had full electrical power, which means I could do things like use my autopilot used radios and everything. So with the autopilot engaged, set up for glide, I'm able to begin to address the issue of the engine. So the Mooney 231 is equipped with a Continental TSIO 360 LB1 engine. Now this is a six-cylinder turbocharged uh, engine with uh, a fuel-injected engine. And if you're familiar with, uh, with the way the Continental fuel injection system works, It's a little different than the Lycoming, and you have a lot of latitude over how you manage mixture control. Well, 
I had tried the mags and I was convinced at this point that it was a fuel rather than an ignition problem. And let me interject uh, one other point here. An interesting thing was was happening as this was as I was going along here and trying to do this troubleshooting. There were apparently some, a number of pilots on the frequency listening to this who were familiar with North Barrier Island. Hmm. And about every oh I don't know minute or so, I get these little five to ten second snippets of information from pilots. They were giving me information about the airport there. Things that I should know, you know, well, you're going to want to cross this altitude, watch out for this hill. So they're giving me useful information that I'm trying to absorb while I'm troubleshooting the engine. But I thought it was interesting and nice that not only was ATC trying to help, mostly ATC was being quiet on this, they, mm. but the pilots on the frequency hearing me were trying to give me useful information that would, would improve my outcome. And you didn't find that to be a distraction? I could see how that could easily move over into the lane of being a distraction rather than a help? Well, they were short, they were to the point, and I actually found them useful. Hmm. Okay. So um, I have quite a bit of time. I think I mentioned that I figured I had 15 minutes before I was going to be there, which means 15 minutes of troubleshooting time, of glide time. There's not a lot for me to do except think about the problem and work the problem. And the other part of it was thinking about what I was going to have to do to land the airplane. To be honest with you, I was not frightened at all. Mm -hmm. I was very calm in all of this. The only thing I was worried about in all of this was my approach to North Barrier Island. Mm -hmm. I only had one shot at it, and I had to make my approach correct so that I neither overshot nor undershot the runway. If I had a five or 6,000 foot runway, it'd be a no-brainer. But with 3,000 feet, I really didn't have a lot of leeway one way or the other. I had to get my initial approach to the island correct. And you're coming down out of high altitude in a Mooney, which is a slippery airframe. So those can be difficult to slow down, probably, probably a little more difficult than your average airframe. So the need to be somewhere near the speed and gauge this ride about your glide distance is, is pretty important to you. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to be sure I arrived at low key, uh, which is the point in the downwind from which you can make a normal power off landing. I mean, basically, many of us have done the power off landing from downwind. It's a required uh, maneuver for uh, commercial and a lot of uh, flight instructors instruct their, their primary students in it as well. And the key point is, you want to get to that point on downwind, on speed, on altitude, from which you can do a normal power-off landing. Got it. Was your approach to do like a military um, SFO simulated flame-out where it's a big uh, high 360, go to high key, then low key, and so forth? So is that what you were aiming to do, or were you aiming to shoot directly for downwind and low key? Well, uh, it was going to depend on where I was uh, when I finally got over the island. If I arrived over the island close to pattern altitude, then it would be directly to low key. Okay, I would go directly to that point on downwind, 
adjust my flight path slightly to end up on downwind so that I can make that normal approach. But if I was going to end up very high over the island, then I would do a standard you know, simulated flame out high key, low key approach where I would spiral down from altitude, adjusting the flight path to hit low key properly. Mm-hmm. So again, it depended on how high I ended up there. And remember I said the glide ring extended well beyond North Barrier Island. It didn't extend all the way to North Island, but it extended beyond um, North Barrier Island. So there was no question in my mind that I was going to arrive over North Barrier Island with the necessary altitude from which to execute my my landing. That, that had to be a comforting feeling when you looked down and saw that glide ring and realized it was going to be just managing your glide and your speed not managing getting the raft out because you weren't going to make it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you for a flight. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they def- I, I was yeah. very happy to have that. So anyway, so I have time. I have time to work the problem. I'm not feeling pressured on altitude or energy or time at this point. So I'm thinking, what could the problem be? I'm satisfied that the problem is not ignition. It's got to be fuel. I don't have any indication that there's anything wrong. I don't have any indication of leakage. I'm showing fuel flow. So what's going on here? So I started playing with uh, throttle and mixture and boost pump. I found that if I turned low boost on, the engine would come back for about two seconds and then quit again. So I tried high boost. One of the problems with the Continental engine is if you turn on high boost, it will flood the engine unless the engine-driven fuel pump isn't working. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I'm thinking, in all probability, I've lost the engine-driven fuel pump. So I turn on high boost, the engine comes back, the engine fails again. But I said to myself, this could be because I'm flooding the engine. So I started reducing, pulling back the mixture control, and I found a position of throttle and mixture and high boost that gave me about 55% power. Hmm. And the engine came back and it started running more or less normally. So I still have the option of landing at North Barrier Island, but I now arrived at North Barrier Island with 13, at 13,000 feet. Hmm. So I've got lots of altitude and the engine has now been running for a couple of minutes steadily without a hiccup. But only at 55% power. But only at 55% power. It was, okay. hey, look, it runs. I have no intention of, of fiddling with the controls now. I found a setting that gives me sufficient power. In fact, I have sufficient power to maintain level flight. So I told ATC that I was going to overfly North Barrier Island in the direction of North Island while retaining the option of returning to North Barrier Island should the engine quit again. So that's what I did. So I continued over North Barrier Island towards North Island until my glide ring reached the first airport on North Island. And fortunately, the glide ring overlapped both North Barrier Island and North Island. So I now felt comfortable uh, hopping to North Island. I was much more comfortable getting to North Island because I knew that if I could land on essentially what was the mainland of New Zealand, I'd have a better opportunity to do uh, repairs to the aircraft. In fact, my hope was to be able to make it all the way back to Hamilton, New Zealand, which is where I had started from, because Hamilton, New Zealand has uh, Oceania Aviation, which is the Lycoming 
and Continental overhauler, approved uh, engine overhauler for New Zealand, which means no matter what the problem was, no matter what accessory had failed, no matter what the problem was in the engine, I'd be able to fix it there. Hmm. So at this point, I opt to continue. I've overflown North Barrier Island. I'm approaching North Island, the first airport there. And uh, I requested that ATC allow me to basically leapfrog from airport to airport, staying up at 13,000 feet, but leapfrog from airport to airport until I got back to Hamilton. If at any point in time the engine seemed like it was going to quit on me, then I would immediately uh, divert to the closest airport and land there. So that was the plan. That was in place. The engine was continuing to run. Power settings, as I said, were at about 55%, which was giving me um, almost normal cruise. So I'm set. And I'm now working my way back towards uh, Hamilton. Uh, the only interesting thing that happened at that point was when uh, Center handed me off to Hamilton Approach. And the first thing, I am IFR still. And the first thing Hamilton Approach says to me is, uh, I think he said, descend and maintain 4,000. <laughs> <laughs> I, I keyed the microphone and I said, you do know I'm having engine problems, right? And he says, yes, we're aware of that. I go, okay. I have, the engine is running just fine, and I have a nice descent profile that will take me right to the threshold of the runway at Hamilton, and it's my intention to remain on that descent profile. Is that okay with you? <laughs> and he said, oh, okay, yeah, sure, no problem. <laughs> you are cleared to maintain any altitude. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And so I did. And so, you know, I made it back to Hamilton and uh, got the airplane on the ground. I was even able to taxi to uh, Oceania Aviation before shutting it down. Hey listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. Now, what about that descent profile, though? You, you 55% power is enough to maintain level flight in a clean configuration. I imagine it's not enough once you get configured. And sometimes a partial engine failure can be more challenging than a full engine failure because you're kind of moving between this hybrid situation Talk us through that. What were the mechanics of that? And did you delay your gear at some point, putting your gear down, or how did you work that? Well, uh, actually, the Mooney will will maintain. Uh, I, I was right on the on the edge there at fifty five percent power. Okay. Remember, I'm still carrying a lot of fuel. Yeah. So I'm I'm still heavy. Really heavyweight, yeah. But uh, glide was normal. Performance was pretty much normal. And so my descent profile was to put the nose down, carry extra speed with the airplane clean. And then once it was clear, I could make the runway, pitch up, slow down to gear speed, uh, drop the gear, and uh, then continue with, uh, with the descent to the runway, which is, uh, which is what I did. And in fact, as I got on short final, I was configured for normal descent to landing. I had gear down, full flaps. And I was right on my uh, my normal uh, approach speed, 1.3 vs zero. So uh, there was no uh, no problem. It was a completely normal landing at that point. Got it. 
okay, so basically once you're on your landing glide slope and configured, like most airplanes, your power's back anyway as you're right. uh, approaching. You just would not have – you had to be careful because you would not have had the ability for a go-around in that situation. Right. I might have gone around, but I had a nice long runway in front of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tower was aware um, that there was no uh, no conflicting traffic. And so it was, you know, I just came straight in, uh, landed, all was good, taxied up to the shop and shut down. Now, the interesting thing was then the problem, what was it? What yeah. could have happened? Now, remember I said this acted very much like a failed fuel pump. Mm-hmm. failed engine driven fuel pump with the exception that i really had to adjust the mixture control almost to idle cut off to keep the to keep the engine running which was not normal for a, a failure of an engine driven fuel pump even so we assumed that was the problem and that was our first uh, our first assumption so we pulled the engine driven fuel pump put it on the test bench and the fuel pump tested perfectly completely normal in every way so now we're left really scratching our heads. What could this be? There's no obvious reason for this engine to have quit. There's nothing abnormal with the engine itself. The engine-driven fuel pump is okay. The inject fuel injection system's obviously working. What could the problem be? I have a, a JPI engine monitor, an EDM 930, which collects a lot of data. So I took the data off the engine monitor and I sent it off to uh, the folks at Savvy Analysis. And uh, a couple hours later, they came back with, hey, did you notice that your problems began right after you closed the cow flaps? Hmm. Now, I think that's really interesting that these guys can take your engine monitor data Mm -hmm. and tell you what you're doing with with the engine and when you did it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the point is he could see the sudden change in uh, cylinder head temperatures, the rise when the cow flaps close. Because they rise, uh, you know, in climb, they tend to be lower with the cow flaps wide open. And then as I close the cow flaps and configured for cruise, the temperatures come up to normal, you know, come to normal operating temperature. Anyway, he noticed that. He said, so... What could it be that closing the cow flaps and the temperatures changing could cause the engine to quit? And I said in my head right then, vapor lock. And then down a little lower in his message, he said, check, could it have been vapor lock? Hmm. So I said, what what could cause vapor lock? I mean, this engine, this airplane's been flying. At, up to this point, I've flown probably... 150 hours on this trip. You were three quarters of the way around the world, right? Yeah, I'm three quarters of the way around the world. And there's no indication of of anything wrong. And in fact, for the last, I don't know, probably 50 hours, I have been in first world aviation. Mm -hmm. You know, landing at uh, Bangkok, Thailand is definitely first world aviation services. Uh, Singapore, first world aviation services. All of Australia, first world aviation services. New Zealand, first world aviation services. Well, I said, okay, it's fuel, it's a problem, vapor lock, let's start looking at the engine and look at the fuel system. Knowing or, or feeling pretty certain that it was, that, that you know, we were looking for a problem in the fuel system. I decided the first place to start was as far back in the fuel system as I could get. And that was the uh, fuel strainer in the gascalator. So I pulled the a fuel strainer in the gascalator and found it about 80% plugged with some kind of fibrous material. Hmm. So at this point, 
we were pretty sure that we were dealing with some kind of fuel contamination problem. So how could this have caused the engine to stop running? Well, if you understand a little bit about the fuel system in the Mooney, the gascalator uh, comes after the fuel selector, and those two things are the lowest point in the fuel system. Mm-hmm. Now, the fuel pump on the Continental engines, it forms a major component of the fuel injection system. So it's all the way in the front of the engine. So the fuel line from the gascalator up to the fuel pump runs the entire length of the uh, engine underneath the engine in the hottest part of the cowling. So what was happening was here I am, I'm at 21,000 feet. So the ambient pressure is less than half normal, okay? I've closed the cow flaps. I've raised the temperature of that fuel line to probably, you know, it's now in an ambient temperature that's in the, the two to 300 degree range because of the, the air coming, you know, cooling air coming through the, mm-hmm. the uh, engine. And so that fuel line's getting heat soaked all the way up front. So now we have this restriction and the fuel pump is sucking on that fuel line, further lowering the pressure in that fuel line. Mm. And what happened was you raise the temperature and drop the pressure and the fuel in the fuel line started to boil and and produce vapor. Well, needless to say, engines don't run very well on fuel vapor. And that was what caused the, the engine to cut out. So what was happening, you know, the initial surging was... The beginning of the the fuel to boil, the the little little bubbles were forming, and little bubbles were going through the uh, the injection system and causing changes in power. As bigger bubbles went through, then the engine would begin to would begin to cut out, and eventually it just got hot enough to where the fuel just all boiled, and there was no liquid fuel getting to the fuel pump, and that was the end of it. The engine quit running, so that was the problem. Unfortunately, what this did is it meant we had to take the entire fuel system apart. So from the fuel selector all the way through to the injectors, every component of the fuel system had to be opened up, inspected, cleaned, blown out, every single screen. And there are lots of little finger screens in all the different components. There's a finger screen in the the flow divider. There's a finger screen in the fuel pump. There's a finger screen in the uh, throttle body. I mean, there's all kinds of these little these little filters and screens all through, and everyone was contaminated. But why on this leg, Brian? Do you think the fuel that you bought in uh, Hamilton, New Zealand, was contaminated, or why on this leg? I, to be honest with you, we couldn't figure it out. Hmm. We looked carefully. We went back to the fuel pump and sampled the fuel the you know the fuel distribution. A facility there at the uh, airport. We checked that. There were no signs of contamination there. I had drained my tanks. I mean, every time mm-hmm. before I fly, I drain the uh, I drain the tank and I drain the uh, uh, the gascalator. And there were at no point in time was there anything that indicated that I had gotten contaminated fuel. Now, from the time I got to Africa until I got to Bangkok, Thailand. I was getting fuel from barrels, mm-hmm. uh, sealed barrels of 100 uh, low lead. And, but every time I opened a barrel, it had a seal on it. You know, the, there's mm-hmm. an actual aluminum seal on the cap so that you can tell if it's been tampered with or if it's been opened. And these were all sealed barrels. I opened them up. I'd take my flashlight. I'd carefully look in there. I'd swish the barrel around uh, looking for any contaminants on the bottom. Nothing. 
and then we'd pump the fuel into the uh, into the airplane. So at no point in time was there any indication that I had received bad fuel. Obviously, I had somewhere, but I, to be honest with you, I couldn't tell you where it happened. Someone did suggest that there was a possibility that it may have been something that was left over from resealing the fuel tanks. The Mooney uses a wet wing. In other words, the skin of the wing is actually the, the side of the fuel tank. And then the wing itself is sealed. And so that gives you uh, a portion of the wing itself to be the fuel tank. That's the, that gives you the greatest fuel capacity and the, the lightest fuel tank you could have in the airplane. And in the, in the process of preparing the airplane for the flight around the world, I had extended the size of the fuel tank. Uh, there's an STC that does that. And in that process, we had gone through and stripped and resealed the fuel tanks. And someone suggested the possibility that some of that sealing material may have broken loose or broken up or not have been fully, not fully adhered to the inside of the tank and then been sucked into the, uh, the filter. But to be honest with you, we have no idea. No one I've talked to, and I certainly have no idea where the contamination came from, but it sure was there and it was all through the fuel system. And it took me a week uh, of work to make sure that the airplane was ready to fly again. And I ended up having to do all of that work myself. The shop there, very capable shop, could do everything, but they were very honest with me. They said, look, we don't have anybody, we can't spare anybody from our other projects to turn a wrench, but we will help you in any way we can. You're welcome to tools and everything. They said, how do you feel about doing your own work? And I said, it doesn't bother me at all. I've been turning wrenches on airplane engines for uh, for 50 years. So um, I had no problem doing the work myself. And you're an A&P as well, right? I am not. No, I am not. No? I'm not okay. an A&P. I'm someone who's, been, who's worked on their airplanes for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I've rebuilt my own engines. I've, I've now rebuilt uh, three Lycoming engines in, in aircraft that I've owned. Uh, under the watchful eye of an A&P, but I like to do my own work where I can. I like yeah. to touch everything. I like to fully understand the systems on the aircraft that I'm flying. And for me, and for, for someone contemplating doing a long trip like this, I'm going to take a little sidestep here. We don't really appreciate how wonderful a country we live in for aviation. If you think about it, here in the United States, we can go almost anywhere land, find a competent A&P, find fuel, find support. ATC covers the entire country. We have ADSB. We have data-linked weather. We live in the absolute aviation mecca of the world, okay? And so a lot of us accept the fact that we fly airplanes and we have other people who will work on them for us. And that's a very reasonable thing to do in the United States. Once you get outside the United States, especially in much of the third world. That's not true. There's nothing there. You're on your own. If you, if someone listening to this is contemplating flying around the world and decides to take a route that traverses substantial portions of third world, thir the third world, they're going to be faced with the possibility of having to do major work on their airplane themselves if there's a problem. I'm lucky. I've been doing it all my life. I like turning wrenches on aircraft engines and car engines and things like that. I know my aircraft systems upside down and backwards. 
I probably should go and get an A&P rating. I've just never done it. Yeah, see, I agree with you. It seems a requirement if you're going to do this kind of adventure flying. So I am curious, though, Brian, you take a week, um, tear the fuel system down, put it back together. You don't really find the smoking gun, and you're about ready to launch off on perhaps the most remote part of your entire flight all the way across the Pacific there to Hawaii. That's was that on your mind as you launched it? You didn't really find the smoking gun here. Well, we did. Oh, we definitely found the smoking gun, which is we found the contamination and we got it out. Okay. And there was nothing in the fuel. We drained the fuel out. We sampled the fuel. We could not find anything in the fuel that indicated there was anything in there. Mm-hmm. But after I completed the um, work, got it all cleaned up, got it back together, and everything seemed to run normally. I then took the aircraft to 23,000 feet over Hamilton and uh, flew flew basically a holding pattern. I closed the cowl flaps, ran the engine up to a much higher than normal power setting, allowing the engine temperatures to approach redline. In other words, I wanted to create, one, I wanted to go higher than I normally flew, which meant lower ambient pressure. Mm-hmm. I wanted to run the engine harder, which, in, which meant increased fuel flow which would show up a restriction more quickly. And I wanted to force the temperatures higher. In other words, I wanted to create, if anything was going to recreate the problem, this would do it. It would be much more challenging environment for the engine and fuel system than what I normally normally use. And I ran it that way for about an hour without the slightest hiccup. Hmm. Came back down and, um, and landed. At that point, I was comfortable again with the plan to to head out across the Pacific. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like a great test flight. So you knew it was fuel contamination. You're not exactly sure where the contamination came from, but you felt very confident that you had purged the system, ran a great test flight, and now you launched again across the Pacific and then obviously uh, finished your journey and made the flight successfully. So Yes, indeed. The only thing that, uh, that I was disappointed on at all was the plan had been to complete the flight with a landing at Oshkosh. Uh, I would have crossed all of the, uh, the meridians for uh, a circumnavigation by then. So I was going to complete the flight at Oshkosh. But unfortunately, that losing that week, losing almost a week in Singapore, I actually had a magneto failure too. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why I was satisfied that I didn't have an ignition problem was that over the course of the trip, I had repaired one magneto and replaced the other. Hmm. One of the things I decided in starting the trip was, you know, what, what do you do? Um, and I decided to keep my magnetos, even though they were, they were going to be crossing the 500 hour mark somewhere during the trip. I decided to, uh, to keep them instead of putting fresh magnetos in. I'm more afraid of infant mortality, you know, something failing early on than I am in something failing later. But in this case, that turned out to be the wrong decision. And I did have one magneto failed and the other one, the timing had drifted enough that I realized that, uh, that it was potentially going to fail too. Well, Brian, as you look back on your on your incident, first, the thing that's noticeable to me is 
you knew that you had a fuel problem or you highly suspected it was a fuel problem, if you have an engine failure, it's either something mechanical that, you know, you can't get back, a rod breaks or, you know, a valve or something, or it's either fuel error or ignition, and you felt pretty comfortable that you didn't have some kind of serious mechanical issue inside your engine, and that left you with... Uh, fuel or uh, or spark or air what what led you to just have this really sneaky suspicion that you had a fuel problem well i was fairly positive it was not mechanical there were no signs of mechanical problem oil temperatures uh up to the point where it started oil temperatures cylinder head temperatures oil pressure and even when the engine stopped producing power oil pressure was normal no signs of mechanical distress there were no strange noises so I sort of just said, one, there's nothing I can do about it if it is. I had had problems with the magnetos. Both magnetos have been replaced. I did check the magnetos. I did a quick mag, mag check. Of course, that had no result, no response. Really, the one thing that I could deal with, that I actually had something to, to work on, was fuel. I can switch tanks, I can play with the boost pump, low boost, high boost, I can adjust the mixture, I can adjust the throttle. I have all kinds of things I can affect with a fuel problem. So part of it was not so much just thinking it was a fuel problem, it was if it's a problem I can fix, it's going to be a fuel problem. I've got time, let's see if this is the problem and this is what we can deal with. And it turned out to be. And it seemed like what really helped you in, in times of an emergency, you know, we maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, and then take proper action. Your maintaining aircraft control was helped by the fact that you kept your autopilot on and you set, you turned around, you saw you're within the glide ring to make uh, the barrier island. So that was a big relief in your mind. And now you decide not to windmill your propeller which is not the typical response in that scenario. Typically, if you have an engine failure, you're gonna windmill the propeller to, uh, I'm sorry, a feather the propeller, or at least you know, pull it all the way back so that you can get the best glide ratio. You make a decision not to do that. Can you walk us back through what your thinking was there? Well, the issue there was clearly not that I needed to stretch my glide range. I had plenty of range to make it to North Barrier Island. No matter what I did, there was no way I was gonna make it back to North Island. So that decision was made for me, and therefore adjusting the propeller control would not have changed the outcome at all. So I just left it. That was, again, it was a decision that, that really didn't need to be made. So, And the other thing is, with the engine turning normal RPM, the alternator's producing full output, and that meant I didn't have to do any load shedding, I didn't have to turn off the autopilot, and those things were helping me. The radios, I'm talking to ATC, I can leave those on. The transponder, ADSB is on, you know, they're, they're tracking me, they're talking to me. So I, I really didn't have to expend any time thinking about those things or changing those things. I could focus all of my thought process and troubleshooting process on troubleshooting the engine. Yeah, so it was more helpful to you to have the engine rotating to keep those electronics on than it was to... Uh, Put the prop at a, at a high pitch setting, you know, minimum drag setting, because in the moment you make a decision, I don't need that. This is right. actually more exactly. helpful to me to keep the electronics on, keep fully powered, so I'm not worried about when's this battery going to die or, or what do I have to load shed and all that stuff. 
So now you're able to keep the autopilot engaged, which is helping you maintain aircraft control, which is now allowing you some more uh, time to analyze your situation, which is now you look at it and, as in your words, decide this, this is what I can ma- manipulate, these fuel controls, and you start doing that in different forms and fashions until you figure out how to get some level of power back, which made a pretty big difference because this ended well. From your skill level, it likely would have ended well at at, uh, the North Barrier Island, but it certainly made it easier that you were allowed to go to a 5,000-foot strip with a lot more and some engine power than a dead stick landing into a a small strip. Exactly. Uh, I had the time. I had a you know not only had the time but I had the the presence of thought to focus on the problem and make it better which I did and as a result it became I won't say a, a non-event but um, it became an almost normal um, landing at at a good destination that allowed me to, to get everything done that I needed to get done. If I'd ended up on North Barrier Island, yes, I would have been safe. The airplane would have been intact, probably. Um, there's always the chance that I would have messed that up. Like I said, the th- one thing, the only thing I was worrying about at that point in time was making sure that I got the airplane at the low-key position from which I could successfully land on a 3,000-foot strip. I mean, you know, you're talking about shooting for the bullseye you're 30 nautical miles away and you're going to make a dead step landing on a 3,000 foot uh, strip yeah you got to get it right and i would even add a little bit further in in a mooney going back to just that's a, a highly aerodynamic very slippery airframe there so it's not easy to bleed off speed even with the speed brakes in a mooney and so yeah, just uh, another thing that you had to be thinking about, to your point, you had a, a pretty narrow eye of the needle there that you were going to have to thread to do that. But by continuing to analyze your situation, and then you take some appropriate action that's nowhere in a checklist, this all comes from your judgment, your experience, continuing to analyze your situation, and you take some action that ends up putting you in a, in a far easier scenario to deal with, that, that being moving to the 5,000-foot runway instead of the 3,000-foot, and now maximizing the chances of a positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, one of my big takeaways is I use this when I am training Mooney pilots, especially Mooney pilots who are flying continental engine-powered Moonies. Hey, this happened to me. And I was able to deal with it because I understood how the fuel injection system in the Continental Engine works and was able to make decisions based on my understanding. And therefore, if I can teach you more about how this fuel system works and you encounter a similar situation, you'll be able to go through this same troubleshooting process and hopefully produce a better result as a result. That sounds a, a great lesson learned is understanding the systems of your airplane. What are some of the other lessons learned from this that the rest of us can take away, Brian? Well, I think the biggest one is know your airplane mm-hmm. and know it well. Don't be afraid to go look over your A&P shoulder. Don't be afraid to participate in, uh, in an annual inspection. Turn a screwdriver, turn a wrench. You will learn something. Your ANP is a wealth of information, and they can teach you things about your airplane that will make you a better pilot 
or better at operating your aircraft. So that's kind of the first thing. Be involved. Uh, be involved in your aircraft's maintenance. Be involved in understanding your airplane and its systems so that you can get uh, maximum performance out of it. The second thing, of course, is understand how your airplane behaves. You've made a key point here. The, the Mooney's kind of slippery. The Mooney has a narrower window of getting it right and getting it down to the uh, runway than other airplanes. You know, I, there, I fly airplanes where if I put it into a slip, it's going to come down like a brick. The Mooney, not so much. It doesn't have enough rudder and uh, it just doesn't get get draggy in a slip the same way a lot of other airplanes do. So I was definitely faced with having to really hit that low key point in the downwind in order to, to make it to the runway. So therefore, practice knowing where that point is. Go out and do it. Hey, so many of us, we get in our airplanes and we fly somewhere and everything is always the same. We forget a lot of those maneuvers and, and things that we learned as student pilots that we just haven't needed. When was the last time you went out and did stalls and steep turns? When was the last time you did accelerated stalls? I love accelerated stalls because uh, they're, the, they're the easy way to exercise your response to, uh, to an upset, uh, a stall-related uh, upset. But when was the last time you did this? When was the last time you came up a beam your touchdown point on downwind, pulled the power, you know, pulled the throttle all the way to idle, and made a normal landing? When was the last time you did that? Well, you know, in my case, even though I do it, I hadn't done it for a while, and I was sweating the fact and kind of kicking myself going, you know what? I'm not as practiced at this as I should be, and now... I really need it, and now is not the time to be practicing. <laughs> you make a good point on the engine out landings, Brian. It's um, most of the time, as I instruct, and I, I uh, will simulate pulling an engine on uh, students. They'll point right at the field that they want to land in, and they'll they'll try to do this long straightaway, which takes a lot of judgment and is often oftentimes undershot, and. It's such a better scenario to point to the field, fly over it, and do this high-key, low-key thing that you're talking about, a big 360-degree turn back to, uh, back to the landing spot, because you have so many places inside that turn that you can manipulate your parameters. If you're a little bit fast, just pitch up a little bit and slow down. If you're a little bit low, you can bring it in tighter to the field or tighten that turn up. And so I've found that to be a much higher probability of success in a simulated engine out situation, but you got to practice it and know your parameters and what different points along that pattern that you're shooting for. Right. Absolutely. If, if you know where that point is in the downwind from which you can make that successful power off landing, you just have to get to that point. That's the point you're shooting for. Because from there, you already understand the small changes you need to make in flight path and aircraft configuration to get you down. Do you have a strong, you know, is it a strong wind day and you're going to have a, uh, you're going to have a, a strong tailwind on downwind and strong headwind on, on uh, final? Uh, is it a, a light wind day? You, after doing it a couple of different ways, you begin to realize what or understand what you have to do from that low key position. And that low key position is the point on downwind that's a beam your touchdown point. In other words, your touchdown point is right off the tip of the wing. So uh, if you can get to that point, then you already know how to get from there down to the runway. Uh, 
So like you said, come in high if you can. Overfly the field. Come in high. Set yourself up so that you can get on downwind at that point. And that's much easier to do than, like you said, try to go straight into the runway. The only time you want to do that is if it's just, if it's a bridge too far. You know, you're looking at it and you know you're right at the very edge of your your range, your glide range to get down. Then you need yeah. to, you know, you, you may have to you may have to roll the dice then. Yeah. But if you have an option, I had the option. I had altitude. And I knew I was going to arrive at the airport well above pattern altitude. So um, I, I didn't really have, have that worry. As I said, the only worry I had was getting to low key and then getting from low key to the runway. I hadn't practiced it in a while. And that was the only part of it that I was sweating. And of course, once I got the engine to run again, that problem went that away and I could focus on keeping the engine running and leapfrogging from airport to airport until I got back to Hamilton. Well, the lesson learned that I would add is maintaining your composure like you did. You're out over um, the Pacific Ocean, a pretty remote part of the world there, and uh, your engine starts acting up and you maintain your composure, you turn around, the relief of the glide ring, and then you just start working your problem. It sounds like if we could have seen your cockpit, it would have been very calm, very collected. You're deliberately moving through different processes that you're attempting and updating your plan of action based on based on how things are going. And it's a lesson for all of us on maintain composure, know your aircraft systems, and fly the airplane all the way in. Brian, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We're delighted it had a successful outcome, and thank you for sharing it with us. Well, I was happy to be here. If anybody's interested in my trip around the world, my website is still up, and it has pictures and some videos and, of course, my yeah, the blog of my trip. Uh, the website is projectameliaearhart.org, all one word, projectameliaearhart.org. And there is one other thing that I want to add here, and uh, it has to do with aeronautical decision-making and risk analysis. And this is something, you know, a lot of people who look at the fact that I've flown around the world, many professional pilots, they go, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. I would never fly around the world single engine. And if it hadn't been for the fact that my father taught me to fly, uh, my father had been a naval aviator in World War II in Korea. He was fighter pilot. And he had thousands of hours of single engine over water. And he taught me about, you know, hey, if you have to go down to the water, it's a lot better than other options. And, and I find it interesting that many pilots will fly over areas of the United States that are almost guaranteed to produce a bad result if you lose an engine. And yet, who are absolutely deathly afraid to fly over water, where if you had to ditch your airplane your odds of survival are better than 90%. So it's a case of understanding the environment and doing the risk analysis. So flying over the Rocky Mountains or flying over the Sierra Nevada Mountains, your risk is greater than when I was flying over the Pacific Ocean. If I had to go down in the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, one, HF radio, satellite, EPIRB, all of these things are going to have search and rescue coming to me pretty quickly. And my odds of surviving a ditching are very, very high. So to me, the risk that I accepted in flying around the world was not as great as 
the risks that a lot of people take every day flying around the United States because they don't think about it. We have this term, normalization of deviance. Basically, if I do a, a dangerous thing, but I get away with it over and over again, I begin to think it's not dangerous. And so uh, one thing I would emphasize to pilots is that look at your environment. It may not be as benign as you think. So when you, when you look at somebody like me who's flown around the world and flown hundreds of hours over oceans, and you think, that guy's crazy, look at your own operations and look at the environment you're flying over and ask yourself, if I were to lose my engine here, what are my odds of survival? You may find that this causes you to change your routing a little bit. Maybe you fly the airways instead of going direct. Maybe you follow a highway instead of going across that mountain. But just something to think about when you think about that crazy guy who flew around the world following Amelia Earhart. Well, an exciting story and some good lessons learned from Brian. And even for those of us who don't plan to circumnavigate the world, we can learn from his decision-making and some of his risk analysis and think through some of the things he brought up there at the end about risks that we maybe haven't identified yet that are there in our flying and help us just think through those. An adventurous story, and we're so happy you shared it with us. Thanks for joining us on this edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, David O'Leary, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.